Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. First up this week, Cezanne Drawing at the Museum of Modern Art. My guests are the show's two curators, Jody Houtman and Samantha Friedman. Their exhibition surveys 250 of Cezanne's works on paper, from drawings to watercolors, and includes several key paintings as well. It's on view through September 25th. The exhibition catalog, and it's a good one, was published by MoMA. It's available from IndieBound and Amazon for about $40 to $45. We'll have links to both sites on manpodcast.com. Then we'll hear a clip of a sound performance at the Bema Center from Marcus Fisher and from Laura Llewellyn on her exhibition Paolo Veneziano, Art and Devotion in 14th Century Venice at the J. Paul Getty Museum. But first up, Jody Houtman and Samantha Friedman after the break. The Getty Center is having something of a photography moment this summer. Four exhibitions are now open and run through October 10th. Mario Giacomelli, Figure Ground, which features the humanistic work of one of the foremost Italian photographers of the 20th century. The Expanded Landscape, a selection of large-scale, graphically abstract contemporary works. Photo Flux, Unshuttering L.A., which brings together inspiring photographs by L.A.-based artists of color. And In Focus Protest, an exhibition of images made during periods of social struggle in the U.S. Learn more and make free advance reservations at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston, presenting Three Centuries of American Art, Antiquities, European and American Masterpieces from the Fayez S. Seraphim Collection, showcasing more than 200 works from Impressionism through Abstract Expressionism, Pop, Minimalism, and Contemporary Art. MFAH.org slash Seraphim Collection. And we're back. Jody Houtman and Samantha Friedman, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us, Tyler. Let's start with you, Jody. In the first paragraph of the catalog, you say that Cezanne is best known as a painter, of course, but that he produced his most radical work on paper, most radical being your phrase. What made his work on paper so radical, and why was it more radical than his painting? Oh, that's a perfect question to start. Um, and, and that's really the ambition of the exhibition and also the catalog. And I think we see that radicality in a number of ways. The first and maybe the most exciting for us was the way that Cezanne makes his process visible in his drawings. And so our approach, I would say, was one of close looking. And we worked really closely with our, our wonderful paper conservator, Laura Neufeld, in that effort. And so because he made his process visible, we could really follow the way he laid a line of pencil across the paper or laid down veils of watercolor. And, and so that was, that was the first thing that, that really caught our imagination. And I, I think I'd say a few other things about that, that radicality and also having to do with close looking. So Cezanne was an artist who himself looked closely. So that was one of the reasons why we really took that up as our approach. And in that close looking, what we see is that every time he looks, he sees something different. And the way he looks might be different from the way you see something or the way I see something. And so there's a real sense for Cezanne that seeing itself or vision itself is contingent. And one of the places I think you see that really clearly is in a room that is devoted to Cezanne's drawings after sculpture. As much as he defied convention, he he also loved the art of the past and he would go to the Louvre all the time. And you see him 
walking around these marble sculptures and drawing from one side and the other side and the other side. And so you see the way form changes as you move around and how shadow and light changes. So that idea of vision being contingent is is a second aspect of the radicality of these works. And then I think there's a real sense of drawing as an intimate practice. And that was a kind of discovery for us. And I know Samantha has a lot to say about that and about the, the role of the, well, the connection between drawing and domesticity and intimacy. Yeah. I, I mean, I think certainly we were working on this project during the pandemic. So we were in our own homes and having extended relationships with the things and the people around us in our own homes. But I think Cezanne's attention to those things close at hand, his wife, his sleeping son, the apples, of course, the pots, the vessels, the unmade beds, which were a surprise to us, all of those aspects of his his motifs, his repertory of motifs that may or may not be as familiar as others, I think seemed radical to us, especially during this period, because of his sustained attention to them and his ability to continuously mine them more and more deeply over time. And I think just to add to that repertory of subjects, because I think the other thing that we really pay close attention to in the exhibition are clusters of works around a particular subject. And one of the things that you learn is that while Cezanne was certainly painting, of course, that he wasn't drawing in the service of a painting or a painting as an end product, that these works that he drew or painted, let's say around the subject of bathers, for example, he would go back to the same figure again and again, whether in oil paint or in ink or in pencil. And so what you see is a chains of images and a kind of logic of iteration as opposed to the aiming for some kind of final product. Yeah. And I think that refusal of finality occurs on both the level of the composition, like Jody said, there, there isn't a single final composition or a single work. And it also occurs on the level of the line, right? And the approach and the facture of, of each individual work in that there's no single resolved contour ever that outlines an object or a motif, but it's a searching line as we've described it. And Cezanne continues to kind of doggedly pursue it and to struggle with it and to take slow time to find it. And we see, as Jody said in the beginning, that process made visible through that continuous search for lines. So both on the level of the kind of body of work and the repetition of uh, motifs and on the level of the facture of one individual work is that kind of refusal of a, a single conclusion. And I think in both of those, we found that radicality. So how does that play out in individual drawings? I mean, one of the phrases or one of the uses of words that caught my eye in the catalog, and I think it was Jody's, is the importance of the broken repeated line in Cezanne's drawing, that there is never, you know, the edge of an object or the edge of a person is so often made up of many lines, almost as if Cezanne is looking up, looking down, looking up, looking down, adding a portion of that line each each time. Is there a subject or a couple of drawings that might be a good example of the link between looking and line? In the essay in the catalog, I focus on a, a very small drawing of a bather. And in the exhibition, we have a, a set of drawings of a bather, a male bather seen from the back. And in those, you you do see that that repeated line, that searching line. 
and you just offered such a beautiful description of it. And also there's a way that Cezanne seems to be responding to the line itself. So you make a mark and then you might respond to it as much as you're responding to the thing in front of you. So I think there's both of that going on, this kind of tangle that he creates. And it does feel like both he's searching for form and, and of course he knows how to make a contour. And he says this thing that he describes contour as being bloodless. You know, it doesn't have the, because it doesn't really reveal the act of looking. And so we were interested in the way the lines both show the search for that, for that form, for that body, whether it's a bather or a marble sculpture, but also the way it visualizes the act of looking itself. And I think the example that Jody mentions, that little bather is such a beautiful one, but I think it's also important that it's not exclusive to that bather or bathers at all. We see the same broken line, you know, describing the limit of Mont Saint-Mictoire, or we see it trying to describe the sleeve of the Gardner Valier. And so I think that was one of the reasons that it was important to us for the exhibition to look across genres for an artist who is so often considered for one one subset of the body of work, you know, Cezanne's portraits or Cezanne's bathers or Cezanne's still lifes. And I think by bringing the works across the genres together in this exhibition and focusing on a particular medium, you see how that kind of grammar of the broken line repeats again and again, regardless of the subject. Because while we see all the things that he's looking at, more importantly, as you described, we see him looking. And also you see it both in pencil and in watercolor, that broken line. And we have a section in the exhibition that's devoted to Cezanne's materials and methods because we had found it so enriching to look closely with our conservator and and try to understand the grammar of, of Cezanne's drawing. And so we wanted to really share that with our visitors. So we offer these close-up views of different works in the exhibition. So you can call out, for example, this broken blue line. And then visitors can go and kind of search the exhibition and see it repeating, as Samantha said, across genre. Perhaps, obviously, that discussion of the broken lines and its relationship to looking was one of my absolute favorite parts about the catalog. Once I read that, I mean, I saw it over and over again as as I looked at the catalog and then started thinking about that same idea as we go back into the history of drawing as a medium Samantha, we'll come to that in a moment in in regards to one of your essays. But before we get there, I want to just quickly establish what drawing was as a practice for Cezanne. When in the day did he do it? Why did he do it? And then I guess, weirdly, how did, when he drew, informed what he did the next day? He drew all the time. And he drew in sketchbooks that he would have carried with him and on loose sheets, so bigger scale things. And over the course of his career, he made over 2,000 drawings. And of course, he was using these very standard materials, pencil, watercolor, and paper. So nothing too fancy. But as we've been saying to each other and to our team, with, with those very standard materials, he really did miraculous things. I think for him, drawing was a way of thinking. It was a kind of training ground. And it was even said that it allowed him to see well the next day. And that that was this idea that he would go into the Louvre and study these works from the past, especially Baroque and classical sculpture, and he would draw after them. And that drawing 
and that looking and drawing and looking allowed him to learn certain poses and gestures, which he would then deploy the next day or when he attempted a different, when, when he was drawing something completely different. And the drawings are, you know, they weren't treated preciously. They were a private practice for the most part for him. He wasn't dating them. He wasn't signing them. He was sometimes returning to sheets again and again over time. When he picked up a sketchbook, he might pick it up to one page one day and a page further back or go in the opposite direction through the sketchbook another day. So there is this sense of, you know, the accretion of time across individual sheets, across multiple sheets, and a kind of a lack of preciousness about the practice. And in the exhibition, we were so really taken by the sketchbook practice and realized that drawing in sketchbooks was such a core part of his drawing practice that we offered to our visitors the experience of really immersing into a single sketchbook that had been taken apart many years ago that's in the collection of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And so that sketchbook is a kind of spine through the exhibition and you can go page after page as if you were as if you were maybe Cezanne kind of approaching the book, but also a, a viewer just kind of passing through it and seeing the way different sheets might relate to each other or the way he returned over time to, to certain motifs. I love that way of, of exploring drawings. We've seen a number of museums do that in recent years. The Cantor at Stanford has presented Richard Diebenkorn sketchbooks that way, maybe in 2019, 2018, which was pretty neat. Samantha, in, in a kind of related story, really, what is a study sheet and how many are in the show and what do they show us? So these were works that really captivated my imagination from the beginning. It's a form that might be more recognizable or we might think of more readily when we think of Renaissance draftsmen. For example, in the context of Michelangelo, they were referred to as brainstorm drawings, which I an idea that I love. And there are these sheets where multiple seemingly unrelated motifs appear together on the same sheet to that idea of, of the accretion of time. Sometimes the motifs were not made successively. Often they're facing different directions. Often they relate to each other in ways that don't respect scale. So you have something much larger and much smaller. And there are often motifs of different registers. So they might be something copied from life, abutting something copied from a book. And so I really began to think of them as a way that Cezanne was condensing information, visual information onto a page and kind of working through it. And so to that idea of drawing as a kind of an act of thinking, these really embodied that. And so the the first gallery of the exhibition, we decided to begin the exhibition with them for for those reasons. And they almost function like a kind of a preview for the all of the galleries to follow in that all of the motifs that you're going to see throughout the show kind of appear condensed on these study sheets, whether it's bathers or self-portraits or apples or studies after art history. And so I think for someone like Cezanne, who we try so hard to imagine what's going on in, in his brain, which he referred to his own brain as alembic or a kind of a, a distilling brain, which I love in relation to these study sheets. And it kind of helps us get inside there and, and wonder what kinds of relationships might he have been thinking about consciously or unconsciously as these motifs were kind of gathering on the pages. 
one of the things Cezanne does on these study sheets is, is rhyme images to conduct image-based wordplay. What is an example or two? Is he having fun? Is he testing ideas? I, I mean, once, once they're called to the viewer's attention, they are, you know, they become like a pop tune. They just get stuck in your head. <laughs> yeah. So maybe the most evident or the most fun visual rhyme that you see right off the bat is this one that he makes between the kind of round dome of his bald head and the roundness of the apple for which he's most recognized for depicting. And we see this on one study sheet and we also see it in a standalone drawing from the Cincinnati Art Museum, which is a really beautiful drawing as well. And so I think also seeing that rhyme repeated across multiple sheets gives us a little more confidence in the intentionality of it, right? And and so I think that's one of them. Right next to that self-portrait that he offers of his own face, he copies a self-portrait of Goya's. And so that's a kind of another association that he's making and perhaps elevating his own status to the level of a kind of vaunted predecessor. You know, we see these again and again. We see a little figure from a decorative clock on the back of a sheet, leaning at an angle that is the same angle as the figure of a boy copied from a work by the Spanish artist Pedro de Moya. So all of these kinds of rhymes and repetitions, you have to imagine in a visually charged brain like Cezanne's are, are really kind of producing themselves even without his sort of conscious intention. And and I think one of the reasons that's so captivating and interesting for us is because Cezanne is always this artist who we think of with full seriousness and with no sense of humor. And when you read his letters, especially his early letters to the writer Emile Zola, with whom he was, of course, very close in his early years, there is this tremendous amount of wordplay, puns, references to classical literature. The facility is so great and the kind of associative thinking is so rich that you have to imagine that being extrapolated visually in works like these. Hortense and Hortensia. Exactly. Exactly. His wife's name and the and the flower, of course. The flower gets the color I noticed on that on that sheet. I think that telling me, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well then, and then there's the other one of Hortense and kind of a ball shaped form that could be an apple or could be a ball. And you know, she she had this kind of unfortunate nickname called the ball. So it was, you know, sometimes maybe there was a little bit of, I don't know, underhanded humor as well. You know, I had not realized, not that I'm any great Cezanne expert, of course, but I, I, I had not realized that Cezanne had made so many self-portraits within his drawing practice. It almost begins to feel down like Rembrandtian. You know, obviously artists make self-portraits because they themselves are there, and a mirror might be too, but is there any reason beyond that about why he made so many or or that he made so many that that interested either of you? I think his notorious dislike of models probably plays into it too. Of course, you know, the self is there for any artist, but many other artists were more welcoming of models into the studio and Cezanne was notoriously unhappy to have that that presence. And so I think the recurring presence of himself, his wife and his son, his gardener later, these kind of familiar, close at hand subjects, I think says something. 
And there were all those stories just related to what Samantha's just saying about those who did sit for him and how difficult it was and how critical he was about sitting still or Bollard talks about the hundred sessions that he had to sit through. So it's easier to make yourself stay still than somebody else. This may just be a function of what has survived through time. And of course, Cezanne, you know, wasn't a child prodigy like Picasso or anything. But I, I was struck by kind of how old he is in all the drawings of himself. Thinking, of, is that a function of our selection? And I mean, the, in the one in the apple, he's a, the one with him and the apple. Is, he's a little bit younger than a few others that we have. We're trying to think of, of some earlier or, you know, from, you know, from that 1860s, 1870s period. Right. It depends also what we think of as a self-portrait, right? I mean, certainly there are literal self-portraits, but there's a, a drawing that I think we both love that shows these two diving figures. It's from LACMA. You know, it, it's certainly by no means a literal self-portrait, but he talks about swimming in the Ark River with Zola's as youths. And so I think there's, you know, some feeling that that portrayal kind of calls up those memories too. So even if it's not a strict self-portrait, maybe there's a hint of it there in an earlier drawing. Let's talk a little bit about how Cezanne built compositions. One one of the commonalities between his paintings and his drawings is how he uses the underlying material, the underlying support, such as canvas or paper, as both a color within the drawing or the painting and kind of a component of it. Well, first of all, do, do we do you have any ideas about whether he started doing that in drawing and migrated it into oil paintings or if it occurred you know, concurrently. He developed that concurrently. I think we would say it, it was happening at the same time because he seemed to be working both in drawing and painting always. Although I'd say in paper, one of the things that we've been talking about is the way that paper is a kind of central protagonist in the drama of the, of the compositions in his work. And, and although you do have those kind of unfinished areas in his paintings, in, in paper, on paper, the paper plays seems like a much more expansive role than the canvas plays. Expansive in what way? Well, I, I think it the paper functions in a number of ways. One, it's especially in his watercolors, paper is a kind of partner to watercolor. The, the reason that watercolor has that kind of jewel-like luminosity is because the pigment is so transparent that you can see the white paper through, and that's what really gives it its brightness. So on a technical level, it plays a really important role that would be, of course, different than the relationship between oil paint and canvas. But also the paper plays a, a kind of compositional or narrative role in so many of the works where it functions as the wideness of a table or a paper label on a wine bottle. And we just kind of love that the way paper equals paper in that case. Like you don't need to draw the label because it is a paper label. And so you get this perfect equivalence of subject and means there, or in other cases, the kind of burnish on a burnished bone of the skull or the kind of brightness or shine of porcelain. So it, it, it takes on these different roles as a compositional function. And then I think there's, there's all of this tension between opacity and transparency, especially in the still lifes where you see paper functioning, as I said, like functioning as a the white of a of a porcelain teapot or a paper 
paper label, but also sometimes it functions as, simply as a transparent glass. And so in, in a single composition, that paper is playing both roles. And I think that tension gives those still lifes their kind of energy. Yeah, and I think there are, you know, there are a few paintings in the exhibition. We chose key examples that we thought furthered certain arguments about Cezanne's methods on paper and the relationship between the methods on paper and on canvas. And in, for example, in two canvases of Madame Cezanne that are in the show, I think you really see the way that that translates from paper to canvas, where in the Guggenheim's painting, he's thinning out the oil and really treating it almost like watercolor. And you see so much canvas shown. And in the Metz painting, there's this area of Hortense's hands where you have all of this active pencil that's revealed by a lack of oil paint. And so I think that even as Jody says that these things are very much happening simultaneously, one senses that there's a kind of a permission or a cue from the, the practice on paper that seeps into the practice on canvas. And, and I think also there's a, the places that are unpainted on canvas or on paper often aerates the composition. It adds kind of light and openness. And there's a very beautiful uh, comparison of a painting from the Harvard Art Museums and a watercolor that are, they're both these landscapes, but they're, they're barely painted. It, it's, it's that kind of open airiness that kind of gives the composition its life. We'll have all of these examples on manpodcast.com, of course. You know, speaking of the relationships between canvas and paper, are there links between how Cezanne made marks on canvas and how he made marks on paper? Yes, there, there's definitely a relationship, and we try to call that out in the exhibition and in the catalog. And I'm just thinking of one off the top of my head, a, a, a real one-to-one pair of Madame Cezanne. And going back to our discussion about the broken line, in the watercolor of Madame Cezanne, she's sitting at a desk, kind of in profile, and you can you can see some details of the desk, of the legs, and and the back of her chair. And the back of her chair is made with these multiple broken lines in so many different colors. It's just kind of if you just focused in on that, it would be this kind of amazingly luminous, colorful, abstract picture. And then right alongside is Madame Cezanne in the same position, again, seated on the straight back chair. And that chair also is described in oil paint with, with a broken line, not as colorful. That painting has, is much reduced in palette. But the idea of what that broken line can do, what can it mean, how it calls attention to process and how it calls attention to the complexity of vision itself. And I think even as there are similarities in the mark making, the materials create differences even when the approach is the same, right? So Cezanne is so famous in his oil paintings for the tosh or those strokes that are those proto-cubist kind of building blocks. But when he makes the same tosh with the side of a watercolor brush, rather than that opaque oil paint, it's necessarily transparent, translucent. And so he has to wait after putting down one stroke 
for that stroke to dry before adding the next stroke so that it doesn't create a muddy brown, but instead creates these kaleidoscopic screens, as the artist Emile Bernard called them. And so even that, that same kind of mark-making approach that Cezanne uses across mediums results in two different effects. And you really see that in a group of works devoted to the gardener Valier that Cezanne makes really at the end of his life. And there's this really beautiful identification of, of these two older men and the painting of Valier, who's sitting down, looking straight ahead. It has the kind of solidity that Samantha was just describing. And it's set in comparison to two watercolors of the same figure in the same position. But in those, you see this vigorous line work and these patches of watercolor that are like screens. And, and so there's a, this sense of weight and fixity in the painting, which is very beautiful, but it's set against these dynamic visions of the figure and the, the, the whole idea of the, the sitter who's sitting for the portrait, which, which is about you know, not moving and this kind of sedentariness is completely upended. Like the sitter here is completely dynamic and in motion. Well, speaking of dynamism, in a great many of the watercolor sheets, Cezanne uses overlapping color combinations in such a way that the objects he's painting have both volume, so a certain three-dimensionality, and they just seem to vibrate on the page. And he often does this by really paring down his palette. So sometimes he gets that vibration by using just two blues or just two yellows and then overlaps those two colors in a way that, that makes them look three-dimensional. Is this something you found across his watercolor practice across many, many years? Do you have a sense of how he developed it or where it came from? There is a kind of arc, I would say, from the beginning, from what you see in the beginning to the end of the exhibition, and from the beginning of the career to the end of the career. And our colleague, Laura Neufeld, our paper conservator, talks about the way early on He's using gouache, which is you know, watercolor that has this, you know, has less transparency, more opacity, more white in the pigment, and that he would draw out the composition and then and then in a way fill it in with a color. And so the the pencil description of the subject is then followed up in a way by the color. Whereas later on, at really at the end of his life in the last decade he's really become expert at watercolor. He really understands how the medium works and it's a notoriously difficult medium. If you make a mistake, you can't erase, you can't change it. You have to kind of work with it. So he's he's really become expert at it, understanding the absorbency of the paper. And in those, there's a relationship and choreography between pencil and watercolor, but there's no need or no necessity at that point for those to be completely in sync. And to your point about color, Tyler, I think, you know, there's a wall in the exhibition with eight watercolors of Mont-Saint-Mictoire, you know, the, the mountain that he would return to again and again. And even seeing the variety in palette and approach with which he addresses the same subject is pretty startling. I think even, you know, when the works came the real things came for us. I think it even struck us more than than having seen the, the reproductions in advance side by side. And they, you know, there's one 
mountain in our collection where there's a riot of color. If you look closely, you're shocked because the overall effect might be a kind of a, a pastel effect. But when you look closely, there are really deep reds and greens that are kind of left unadulterated, really bold moments that kind of you don't expect until you look closely. And then there's a watercolor just alongside it that's left almost bare, where the whole mountain is is basically the paper and there's some blue and gray around it to kind of define it. But you see the same subject approach with two totally different methods. And so I think that was really instructional for us in terms of understanding the the variety of approaches. Those, those same two works jumped out of the catalog for me too. We are taping, of course, before I've had a chance to see the show. If one were to expand that group into three, the private collection work of Mosan Victoire that is, I think, not in the show, but which is the first image in Jody's essay. Yeah, that's the one that's the first image in the essay is the one that Samantha was just describing where the pin is almost only paper. And it's such an amazing way that he's he's expressing mass with this kind of flat, flexible <laughs> material paper. And also the way we've been talking about this a bit with the mountain, especially, and then these beautiful watercolors of rocks, the way he uses this most kind of flexible and light medium for the most heavy of subjects. And so that, I think that is a very beautiful tension that runs through the watercolors of rocks and the mountains. But yes, that is in the exhibition. And so right, it's hung right next to the mountain that's in MoMA's own collection. We'll come back to those rocks in a minute because I was staggered by them. But while we're in color, you know, the blue and the blues that Cezanne uses in his oil paintings has, of course, been much discussed, much discussed over the years. And in the watercolors, it seems to me, and feel free to correct me if I'm, if I'm off, it seems to me that he's using a much wider range of, of blues in, in his watercolors. Do you all think so? Is there anything we should learn from that, if, if, if it's true? I think we'd have to ask, you know, we, if we had Laura here, our paper conservator, she would show us like the Sennelier chart and be able to kind of tell us how many versions of blue were, were accessible or not, but I'm not sure. And if we had our painting conservators, they could tell us also how many blues or, for example, in our very blue bather, where you just see just, you know, there, there's, it feels like a whole palette, the whole spectrum of blue. But I wonder, I wonder if what, what you're seeing is a kind of watercolor effect and that kind of aeration that I was talking about earlier where color, those blues and the other colors are allowed, they really have their own integrity. Each patch has its own integrity and seems to kind of float and as if you could move the patch of color aside as if it's a veil or, or to use Emile Bernard's word, a screen. And I wonder if that if that gives you the sense that the blue is, I don't know, more more persistent or more all over in some of these works. I mean, there's a lot of, we're just flipping through the catalog as, you're, as, as we're talking and there's a lot of blue, but a lot of green too. It's incredible. Like one of the, one of the works, one of my favorite works in the exhibition is this, is one called the green melon, where the melon is this green orb that feels like it's it's actually illuminated and glowing and then it has these broken lines around it over and over again and so the melon itself has this sense that it's it's almost alive almost kind of shivering or shaking 
on the table. There's a green jug that feels the same way. Yeah. And it's interesting, actually, that you mentioned both of those together, that the Jody's description of the melon made you think of the, the Cruchon Vert, because they both have this kind of perfect illustration of Cezanne's idea of the culminating point or that that moment in the object configuration that's closest to the eye of the viewer and the way that both of those are conveyed through this touch of reserve of the paper that functions as a highlight, whether on the melon or on the jug. He, he uses very much the same approach to create the kind of roundness of both of those objects. We have been talking about some familiar Cezanne subjects, Mont Victoire, Apples, Madame Cezanne. Samantha, what scenes do we see in the drawings that don't really migrate into the paintings and why don't they migrate? There's one watercolor in the exhibition that is one of our favorites. It's really spectacular, even as it has a much subtler palette than some of the ones that we've been talking about. It's in these kind of muted blues and browns and grays, and it's a coat on a chair. It's this most kind of humble and quotidian subject. And, you know, it reminds us of the many roles that fabric plays throughout the works on canvas whether as, you know, a backdrop for a portrait, MoMA's fantastic boy in the red vest, painting is in the exhibition and you see this kind of curtain hanging behind him, or as a kind of an undergirding for the structure of the still life where you have a tablecloth white with red stripes or the floral. And, you know, in some of these watercolors, this coat on the chair or this really unique and stunning curtain from the Musée d'Orsay's collection, the fabric is allowed to take center stage in a way that it doesn't in the paintings. And, you know, I think there's a kind of a, a humility in that, right? That there's the, this kind of humble subject is allowed to take center stage in the humble medium. But what comes of that is anything but humble because the kind of volume that Cezanne is able to fashion from that coat on the chair gives it the kind of a grandeur of a mountain, gives it the kind of emotional intensity of a portrait. It's a kind of a surrogate portrait of an absent sitter or the kind of patterning that he's able to convey with that curtain from Orsay or the kind of mystery of this threshold that he describes in that work, you know, makes them among the most compelling objects in the exhibition, I'd say. I'd never seen that curtain from Orsay, from Musée d'Orsay before. And it, and I guess I still haven't, I've only seen it in the catalog. And it just absolutely stunned me at the risk of doing my usual thing by making everything a Matisse thing. You know, once once I saw that particular watercolor, I thought, oh, well, that's where, that's got to be where a lot of the Matisse curtains and draped curtains of kind of late Nice came from. Yeah, it's just a, an astonishing drawing. And also seeing a skull on a textile that is colorful and that recalls a landscape is pretty creepy. I can't think of those two things coexisting in his paintings, Uvra. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a kind of a liveliness to the the floral pattern in that fabric that creates such a stark tension with, with the skull. And actually, we've hung the curtain and that skull that you're referring to together in the exhibition as a kind of a coda, just as you're exiting, because they're such, such strong works, and they have such an interesting relationship to each other. I want to wrap up by kind of jumping off from the coat on a chair that we were talking about a moment ago. 
There are a whole bunch of drawings in which Cezanne embraces something between representation and, and non-representation, particularly in his drawings of rocks, particularly in his drawings of a quarry or two. And they're, they're drawings that are in watercolors that are not, I don't know, they're not quite abstract, but at least that's our word. And Lord knows in MoMA's history, that's a favorite word. And so I don't want to ask if he was trying to be abstract, because I think that's kind of a silly framing. But I am curious if there's reason to believe that Cezanne was, I don't know, interested in illegibility, if there was a fugitiveness to understanding that interested him. I think he was trying so hard to render what, what was in front of him. So in the case of a subject like the rocks, we know the location. There are these two dimples that you see in the rock formation that you see over and over again across each work. So you know he's looking at the same, basically the same place and kind of seeing it in different ways. So he's he's looking so hard, but he's also finding it, you know, it, it's a it's difficult. It's a struggle. His letters are full of, you know, sentences to his son and other artists saying, you know, I'm I'm almost there. I I've just about gotten it or you know, there's not enough time. And, you know, so you get the sense of an artist who's feels like he's, he has this goal and ambition and he's just about there, but he's, he's never really getting to it. And so I think that, you know, when you say illegibility, I think what I think of is that, but also the difficulty and impossibility of rendering what he sees or what, what, the way he would put it, you know, he says he wants to render concrete his sensations. And so that, that word, word sensations, you know, is so associated with Cezanne, but what does it mean? And it's been parsed for decades by scholars. And so, you know, is it just a kind of experience? You know, what is the, the impossibility? The impossibility of rendering your experience, but also the necessity to continue to try, I think, is, is something that, that you really see in the exhibition. Yeah. And is there something about the focus on rendering your sensations rather than rendering the thing itself that is inherently a move toward abstraction. Right. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we really tried to, that, that was something very much on our mind, that it's, that the, the act of looking is as important as the, the thing that, that you're looking at. You know, he writes this very beautiful thing to his son, you know, late in his life. And he says, I'm sitting on the banks of a river and I can sit here for months and all I need to do is move my head slightly to the right or slightly to the left and that's enough. And I think even in that in that move, that marginal move where you see something slightly different is also thinking about the act of looking and and how you render that act, how you how you express that act. I guess kind of to bring the conversation full circle there is a watercolor of a quarry that's in a private collection in the show, and the middle of the watercolor almost looks like a face looking to the left. But that act of looking and determining what the edge of an object should be or shouldn't be, we see, I mean, first of all, the scale in this drawing is really hard to, to, to nail down. It, it's just completely elusive. But it looks like the edge of the rock or the edge of the quarry, kind of the right center of, of the watercolor is offered, attempted, referred to three or four times in, in a way that suggests that, you know, Cezanne is looking and going back to the sheet and looking and going back to the sheet. It's one of the weirdest watercolors in the show and also probably one of the neatest. 
yeah, that's it's such a fascinating one. And of course, it relates to kind of the history of anthropomorphism of art. But yeah, it's, you know, every time I look at it, I think, am I inside the cave looking out? You know, is is the profile of the face that you see actually the view through the cave to something that's lighter and brighter, kind of like a hill in the distance? Or is it the opposite way? Am I looking into something? And, um, and I think that what you see in that particular work, it actually is a similar experience that you have throughout those drawings of rocks, where things come forward or back, they're hard or they're soft. They're rocks and they're also bones. There's one that has a sense of being a kind of femur. So, you know, those kind of, that play is really kind of endlessly fascinating. And back to that original question that you had about what's radical about these things, I think it's that that bothness, right? That flicker, that sense of possibility one way or the other, that uncertainty that's kind of embedded in these things rather than all the answers. And I think that's why those things are so radical. I think that's why we're still looking at them today because they're so open and, and that's what's radical about them. Yeah, the idea of possibility. Very different from British or American painting from just a few decades earlier which is part of why they're, why they're so interesting. Jody Houtman and Samantha Friedman, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Focus Y.L. Shockey, highlighting a film from his ambitious trilogy, Cabaret Crusades, along with new and related drawings and sculpture. In this exhibition, as with much of his work, Shockey explores the ambiguities between history and myth in a multimedia presentation in order to challenge the authority of history. At The Modern through July 25th. Information at themodern.org. Support for The Man podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis, Missouri, that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. Hannah Wilkie developed an unabashed, boundary-crossing art practice that includes sculpture, photography, video, and works on paper. On view through January 16th, 2022 at the Pulitzer, Hannah Wilkie Art for Life's Sake is the first major presentation of the artist's work in over a decade. This career-spanning exhibition encompasses the full arc of Wilkie's practice from the 1960s to her untimely death in 1993. The exhibition offers new perspectives on this critical and influential artist, revealing her to be a trailblazer who was as invested in advancing the position of women in society as she was in developing a unique artistic practice. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, a special treat from our partners at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha. On June 5th, they opened Rachel Adams' exhibition, Altogether Amongst Many Reflections on Empathy, among the highlights of the opening was a performance from Marcus Fisher. We'll hear a clip from that performance in just a moment. Fisher is an artist and musician based in Portland, Oregon. Fisher creates, collects, and transforms audio into soundscapes that accompany performances and installations. He's been an artist in residence at the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation's Rauschenberg Residency, and he contributed two soundworks and two performances to the 2019 Whitney Biennial. Here's a clip from Marcus Fisher's performance at the Bemis on June 5th.
That was Marcus Fisher at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts. Next up, Laura Llewellyn, who, along with John Witte, is the co-curator of Paolo Veneziano, Art and Devotion in 14th Century Venice at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. The exhibition, the first of Paolo's work in the United States, reunites panels that originally formed a larger ensemble, but are today scattered across different collections, including the Gettys, with other works by Paolo. It's on view at the Getty through October 3rd. The exhibition catalog was published by the Frick Collection in association with Paul Holberton Publishing. It's available from IndieBound and Amazon for $60, and yes, of course, we'll have links on manpodcast.com. Laura Llewellyn, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's great to be here. Before we jump into paintings, could you place Paolo within Venice for us, both in terms of the city's history and indeed its art history? Paolo Veneziano is born into a family of painters towards the very end of the 13th century. We don't have his exact birth date, but we can kind of make an educated guess based on the dates of his earliest works, that he was born in the beginning of the 1290s. And he's born into a Venice which is really at this moment in time a major nexus on the cross-cultural trade routes which stretch all the way from Western and northern reaches of Europe, all the way to the Near East and as far as China. And the Venice into which Paolo is born is really a a very prosperous place, very populous. And so Paolo is born into a, a dynasty of painters. We know that his father was a painter. We know that his older brother was a painter. And three, possibly even four of his sons eventually become painters. So it really is a family business. All that being said, Paolo is really the artist that we know most about from this family. And he is the one who's left signed works and and a, a kind of wider body of work that we are able to extrapolate from the fact that we have signed works by him. Up until about 1362, when he dies, Paolo is the leading painter in the city of Venice and running a very productive and very prosperous workshop in the parish of San Luca, the center of the kind of painterly activities of the city. So the earliest signed work that we know of or that survives is from 1333, when he would have been in his, you know, late 40s or maybe even a bit older. What Was he in Venice throughout or did he travel? Is he Venetian through and through and through? Paolo is not recorded anywhere else. All that being said, there's been all sorts of speculation about possible travels and possibly even periods of living elsewhere because of the presence of his art in other places, particularly on the western shores of the Adriatic, the areas of modern-day Croatia, particularly Dubrovnik, and also um, evidence of of influences of other works of art, which suggests that he travelled to other places on the Italian peninsula, perhaps Assisi, uh, Rimini, but we, we don't have any proof that Paolo ever left Venice. But we have very little um, documentation related to Paolo at all. Altogether, there are probably about seven documents, each of, from each of which we can glean you know, little snippets of information about his life, about his members of his family, about where he lived and about who he worked for. He made many large altarpieces, which are still where altarpieces are in churches and such. This show features smaller works. I understand them to be, you know, kind of personal altarpieces for private clients. 
how and why were they made? And was their construction conception similar or different from the larger altarpieces? Actually, in the show, we have kind of specimens or examples of all types of um, output from Paolo's workshop, from pieces that would have originally formed part of really large scale kind of multi-paneled altarpieces for public spaces like the high altar of a church, all the way through to much smaller, more intricate objects which were intended for personal or individual devotion. But your question about construction is a really interesting one and a good one, I think, because one of the things that we were really keen to get across to our audiences in the exhibition was to show people or remind people that so often when you're looking at 14th century Italian painting in a museum or gallery context, you're very often looking at a fragment. You know, more often than not, these works of art have been removed from their original context and, you know, larger multi-panel ensembles have been broken up and the individual panels have been kind of scattered and they've all gone in different directions. So with the two small triptychs that form the centerpieces of the exhibition, one of them is intact, you know, really quite remarkably intact and has remained intact all the way through since the 14th century. And the other has been reassembled for the purposes of this exhibition. And, you know, by bringing together the fragmentary pieces of this triptych, which is something that's never been done before, we really wanted to, you know, remind audiences that so often what they're looking at when they are looking at century Italian paintings are fragments of a kind of larger and more detailed story. But in terms of the construction, I think, I think in many ways, because of the fragmentary nature of so many 14th century Italian paintings, we forget that these are not just paintings, but they're actually often kind of complex pieces of carpentry. And what they are are really products of uh, collaboration between craftsmen working in, in you know, different media with very different skill sets. So Paolo Veneziano would have had trusted carpenters and woodcarpers who he worked with, who would have produced the you know, original piece of carpentry and, and the frame for the panel to go into before painting even begun. And both with kind of large multi-tiered altarpieces all the way through to these kind of smaller triptychs, which are at the centre of our exhibition, these would have required very, very skilled and very technical kind of prowess where the carpentry is concerned. One of the neat bits about the exhibition catalogue is that in each of the entries for individual works, you and your colleagues note in, in some detail which of the, the, the frames, the, the, the carpentry, carpentry constructions are original, mostly original. It really gives a, a clear idea of how important the total object is, which really pretty neat to read. Tell me about the Worcester triptych, speaking of triptychs being put back together, and what bringing what we learned from it being brought back together in the way that you've done. My interest in the Worcester triptych started really with the two small panels in the Gettys collection by Paolo Veneziano, which depict the Annunciation. And when I was thinking about the display of these two works, which are really small and you know, very intricate, very beautiful, I was thinking that they might perhaps be difficult for our visitors to fully understand partly because they have been altered physically. 
they've been truncated so that they're no longer full triangles. Instead, they've got a kind of truncated at one end. And at that end, they were hinged together so that they opened and closed almost like a book in the palm of your hand. And this had the kind of deceptive effect of making them seem like an independent object, when in actual fact, what they are or were originally is the apex of shutters of a devotional triptych. And I started thinking about this triptych more broadly and reading about it. And I realized, you know, all the way through from the 1930s, scholars have been hypothesizing about the original appearance of this triptych and what surviving pieces might have gone together to make the entire ensemble. And I realized that really all of this was just still in the realm of hypothesis and none of it had really been examined from a technical standpoint or in a kind of comprehensive way. And when I got in touch with colleagues in institutions where other, you know, hypothesized or supposed fragments of the triptych are now held, I realized that I wasn't alone in my interests. And actually, you know, other conservators, curators and scientists had been asking themselves similar questions. And from there, we developed a very natural kind of study group, came together to collaborate on the study of the various panels and answer some of the questions which we hadn't been able to do as kind of individual institutions. To your second point of what's the major takeaway in terms of the reconstruction, two things really. One is that to a large extent, the earliest scholars were right. The Worcester, the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and the Getty panels were almost certainly once part of a single triptych. But in one respect, they were wrong, or we think they were wrong, which is that the final piece of the puzzle, the Madonna and Child from the Petit Palais in Avignon, in actual fact didn't fit. And even though the dimensions seemed just right in terms of its width, in terms of the height of the panel, we just couldn't make it fit. And this was interesting because it had always been the panel that scholars had 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 a question mark over. People were concerned that it wasn't stylistically right and didn't seem to fit with the rest of the group in quite the same way. And sure enough, these very kind of close technical examinations relating to the dimensions bore out the original hunch of scholars all those years ago. So do you have a new hunch about where that virgin and child panel might be? Or do you think maybe it's just lost? I think maybe it's just lost, sadly. In actual fact, there's a possibility, and at this point I really am speculating, but there's a possibility that this was the reason that the triptych was disassembled in the first place, because perhaps the central Madonna and child was really damaged, perhaps it had been subject to you know, water damage or had, or burn or some kind of abrasion. And so it was decided that, you know, the other pieces would be salvaged and that the um, central Madonna and child was kind of no longer usable or saleable. One of the most remarkable works in the show is from Parma from about 1340. In the catalog, you call it, quote, maybe the earliest complete example of a type of painted triptych that enjoyed success in Venice and the Venetian territories in the 14th century. What made this type so popular and why does this one stand out? Yeah, so this is one of the things that I got really into in the catalogue. In my kind of contribution to the catalogue, I became really fascinated with the triptych and its design and, and and kind of trying to work out whether Paolo really is the inventor of this typology or whether he you know picked it up from somewhere else. 
And the very short answer is, as with so much material from the period in question, is that we can't be totally sure. You know, there's too much hasn't survived for us to speak in kind of absolute terms. But the weight of the evidence suggests to me that this design, this three-part devotional piece with, you know, three-pointed apexes, which are hinged together, the central section, double the width of the two shutters, so that the shutters close over the top of the central section in its entirety. This format, which is self-supporting, you know, it doesn't stand on a base, but when the shutters themselves are opened, the triptych becomes self-supporting. This format seems to originate in Paolo's workshop. And my main reason for coming to this conclusion is that what does survive from earlier generations of Venetian painters does not look like this. And it seems to me that Paolo is going out into Paolo is going out into his native Venice and picking up kind of visual cues and stimuli and developing a new format as a very specific response to a you know a set of requirements from a certain type of patron with certain devotional needs. And I think what's really remarkable about this triptych and the way in which it's designed is that the experience is kind of multi-sensory because it's not just visual, it's not just the imagery that stimulates contemplation and devotion, but it's also tactile. The object can be moved and it can be, and its shutters can be opened and closed. And so there's a kind of inherent theatricality in the object, this, this process of conceal and reveal, which uh, really brings the object alive. It kind of activates the object when encountered by the individual. And that is an additional kind of stimulus for meditation and memory. All of which also points to why the carpentry and frame construction was, was so important. The show also includes two works from the Uffizi, and they are each terrific examples of a couple things. One, how Paolo painted textiles, but also how he painted interior space. What was notable about how he did each? Yeah, we were so delighted to get these panels because I think they really show a kind of another side to Paolo's production as a painter. Yes, he's he's so capable when it comes to these very ceremonial, you know, very kind of gorgeous and resplendent images of the Virgin and Child, but he's also this remarkable storyteller and he's got this real ability where it comes to scenes of kind of quotidian experience and, you know, daily life. In the scene of the birth of St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas was apparently, so the kind of legend goes, very shortly after St. Nicholas was born, he was being bathed by his midwives. And, he, you know, within an hour of having been born, he stood up and started to preach. And this was his kind of first miracle. And so that's exactly what you see in the scene. It's in the foreground of the painting, yeah. Exactly. You see his mother relaxing or kind of re reposing in bed, having given birth to him, and then his various midwives in the foreground, you know, experiencing the miracle. And yes, as you rightly say, the, you know, really, it's, it's, it's meant to be a depiction of this miracle, but what it really seems to be is a depiction of a bed, you know, this fantastic bedspread with these amazing kind of zigzag patterns, fantastic ultramarine blue with the gold borders, one of the things that we really kind of lean into in the catalogue, particularly my colleague and co-curator, John Whitty, was really interested 
in the way in which Paolo responds to textiles and the textile trade, which would have been so vibrant and kind of and present in the city of Venice at this date. And, you know, in, in these amazing fabrics, particularly this bedspread, you can see that Paolo has had access, probably in this case, to a, a kind of Persian silk. It's a very typical kind of zigzag pattern and is picking it up and using it in his work really in a way to situate his holy figures in a kind of context that the devotee would recognize. Christian believers at this date were encouraged to envisage the stories of saints and, and Christ and the Virgin Mary as taking place in their own kind of backyard, as taking place in their in surroundings that they recognize. And so in a way, what Paolo is doing here is inserting visual details that a Venetian person would recognize. Uh, having said that, not every Venetian person, because what we're looking at here is an extremely expensive, very luxurious, very fine type of imported silk, which obviously wouldn't have been something you know, every person on the street would have had access to. And to the second part of your question about interiors, these are Again, such a treat to have them in the show because they're a really rare example, actually, of Paolo Veneziano's depictions of interiors, and not just any interior, but a domestic interior. And I think really what you see here is him being really kind of imaginative, and there's a real, there's a real fanciful quality to the spaces which the personages in the paintings occupy. Clearly, Paolo isn't concerned with spatial realism. You know, many of his figures kind of tower in these little kind of box-like spaces. But I do love the way he really kind of goes to town on the wonderful kind of coffered ceilings. And then in the example of the generosity of, of, of Nicholas, the kind of fantastic green walls with the frescoed interior, this kind of, kind of panelling, which seems to have been frescoed. What Paolo's doing with his interiors is sliding between a kind of a real and a fanciful world, where there are elements which seem to kind of hint towards lived experience in mid-14th century Venice, but also spaces that are kind of unreal and really the product of his imagination. So in a way, he's holding on to some Byzantine pictorial traditions, particularly the gold. There's gold here. There's so much gold here. Referencing Venice's then contemporary history, all these lush textiles which are flowing through its ports, and then kind of adding something of his own, which is these, I think your word fanciful is perfect. These these fanciful but recognizable interiors. Yeah, my sense is that with these images, he, Paolo's kind of really enjoying himself, coming up with these really engaging interiors that you keep, you keep wanting to explore because they don't make total sense. And yet they feel inhabitable all at the same time. It's, it's those coffered ceilings you mentioned that make them feel inhabitable. Those those the ceilings are you know wonderfully tactile and real and and wonderful. Absolutely, Laura Llewellyn. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.